And for the rest of you, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's first letter to Timothy. I'd like to add my welcome to all of you today, and for those of you that are visitors with us, my name is Greg Durenberger. I'm also one of the elders here at Mayus Road Church, senior pastor. Um, I, I, I want to just take a moment and uh, say a word of thank you to our eldership, uh, Ryan and Logan, and a word of thank you to our missional community leaders, the men and women who are that first line of uh, care and uh, watchfulness over the flock. Let's say thank you to our deacons who lead our ministry teams. Um, I mean, I just came here this morning and, and uh, there, I just realized there was all these things happening that I had absolutely nothing to do with. And uh, it was a, a great kindness of God to see a worship team practicing and there's Caleb leading all those folks and uh, there's Darren and Alec and Tyler unloading a trailer and setting stuff up all over the place and then there's a systematic theology class and a foundations class and uh, Mike Casey's back there teaching. I know Jordan taught last week and um, I, I, I was just so profoundly thankful and, and, and here, here's where I'm going. Last, um, last week I was in Burnsville, Minnesota at Crossroads Community Church, our mother church. And uh, the reason that I was there is that Rick Gamash, I think I'd mentioned this a few weeks ago, about five weeks ago, Rick, who's a dear friend of ours, senior pastor of the church, he, he had a, a fall on the ice, landed on his head, and is suffering, I say is suffering, a severe brain trauma. It's really serious, and um, though the, um, the most recent CAT scan was really, it was clear, but he, he has had bleeding on his brain in five or six places and has, is suffering um, you know, just very significant concussion-like symptoms, really is not functional even yet. And uh, I tried to get there three weeks ago, but the storm, I think it was three weeks ago now, <laughs> um, I got stuck at the airport and Ended up coming back home at midnight Saturday night because the, fl the flight didn't leave. But then I went last Sunday and was able to be with them. And um, I know that they really, really appreciated knowing that our church, this people, uh, their daughter church cares for them. And, uh, and I could do that. I could just be away and not really worry about anything here because of God's kindness to supply us in this season with such stability and strength and margin. And I could go there and care for them. And uh, you didn't even know I was gone. And uh, it, what a blessing it was. And, uh, so I'm, but I'm thankful to God for the, for the kindness to us in this period of time. And so thankful for the, the, the clearly called and competent people just the numbers of you that um, step up and serve week in and week out. I, I just, uh, it is an honor to be part of Emmaus Road Church. Thank you. Okay. First uh, Timothy, it's the first of two letters written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege, 
And we're going to give our attention this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And we're going to continue the series that we've entitled The Economy of God. And we get that title from Paul's stated purpose for the letter um, in chapter 3, verses 14, 15. Namely, that, that we have this clear instruction. He, he is offering us clear instruction as to how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul's letters to Timothy are like this statement of household rules for the local church. Uh, if you have been among us, among the people of Emmaus Road Church for a while, you've heard us probably use terms like the functional centrality of the gospel. You've heard us say things like gospel doctrine plus safety plus time produces gospel culture. What does that even mean? And uh, when I'm asked um, what makes Emmaus Road Church different than other churches, the first thing that comes to my mind is that we're gospel-centered. We we value gospel-centered doctrine and preaching. And so I'll say, well, we're a gospel-centered church. And and to that, people will respond like, well, isn't every church? Isn't every church gospel-centered? What do you mean by that? And in order to answer that question, there really may be no more helpful text than 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. What does it mean to be a gospel-centered people? What exactly is a gospel-centric culture? What does the economy of God look like among the people of God? And so let's give our attention 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. I want to invite you, if you're able, just um, uh, if you're able, let's stand as an expression of honor and regard for the holy and authoritative word of God. Please follow along. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, we know that it's to, to the, this kind of people that you look. People who would come to you and to your word with a humble spirit, tender-hearted disposition, people who have high regard for what you have communicated about yourself through your word. And we want to be that kind of people because we want to know your blessing. We want to know your favor. We want to know that you're looking upon us with affection. And we recognize that even to come to you with that type of disposition, even that is a gift that we cannot muster. So we just turn to you, Jesus Christ. We're looking to you. We're looking to you for all that we need. Would you open the eyes of our hearts and would you help us to hear and would you help us to know you? We want to walk in a manner worthy of you. We want you to be honored and glorified forever and ever. So produce in us all that we need, Lord, to walk in this manner pleasing to you. Thank you for this, this people. Thank you for the gifts that you've given to us. Thank you for this chapter in the season of the life of this church when there is strength, when there is margin, when there is stability. And we have the opportunity to be a blessing to other churches. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our people. Thank you for Kayla. Thank you for, for being kind and gracious in the way that you have drawn her to yourself and you've been getting things done. Lord, we, we want you to do that in all of us. So would you intensify your work among us and make your presence and power something that's discernible here among us today. Do this for your namesake. For the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. My aim in this uh, sermon is to encourage you to think deeply about the gospel. My desire is that would, we would be a people who, who regularly meditate and contemplate and think deeply about... I mean, every day we would be thinking deeply about all that God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. And that's because thinking deeply about the, the gospel is really the only way to feel deeply about the gospel. It's the only way to be transformed by the gospel. As Ryan showed us last week, in the world, we are just absolutely bombarded with information. And in the world, we are bombarded with theories and notions and ideas that, that actually promote and produce um, nothing more than endless, fruitless speculation. But the aim of the economy of God, is, that, that is the household rules of God, it's a, it's a whole different kind of household than that which myths and useless 
theories can produce. The gospel produces a culture of its own. And like a fruit tree, we know a gospel-centered culture by its fruit. And, and at the heart of this text, at the heart of this text is this so-called trustworthy saying. It's a theological creed, uh, apparently crafted by the early church. And that saying, says the Apostle Paul, is deserving of full acceptance. Verse 15, here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul, I believe, knows the temptation that we all face of reducing that trustworthy saying into a well-worn slogan. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of course he did. No pushback here. It's a rock we're standing on. It's worthy of our trust. It's something that we fully embrace. Something we fully accept. Except, as often is the case, a creed or a slogan has an emotional shelf life, right? And after a while, it's like a kind of a faded bumper sticker. It's like a stenciled verse above the dining room table. Rejoice in the Lord. Or a plaque on the wall of the bathroom. Be still and know. It's meaningful. It's a truth to remember. But after a while, the poignancy is, it's worn off by familiarity. The same thing can happen with the gospel. Christ died for my sins. Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is a massive truth. It is the foundation. It's the plumb line for this mighty pillar and buttress that supports and upholds and gives order and governs every category of everyday life in the household of God. And that's why we often say that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's not just the beginning and then after we've kind of accepted the gospel, then we can move on to higher and deeper and more important things. The gospel is the A through Z of the Christian life. And therefore, this trustworthy saying must never be allowed to fall into the category of tired phrases. It is worthy of Full acceptance, wholehearted acceptance, passionate, praiseworthy acceptance. And that's because the gospel has implications. The gospel is meant to function. The gospel is meant to get things done. The gospel is the power of God for daily and eternal deliverance for everyone who believes. And Paul means for Timothy and for the church that Timothy has been charged to lead and for us to be deeply and profoundly affected by this gospel. In God's economy, and, and, and this is, I believe, the main point, my main point at least this morning, the gospel functions to inform and to inspire and to generate gospel culture. 
And 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17 opens a window for us into the most fundamental distinguishing traits of a gospel-centered culture. Now, in our, our foundations class, um, I think they just, today was week number two, in, the, in that class we expound and explain values, the seven values that define what Emmaus Road Church is all about, seven marks that guide and govern what we do, why we do it, what makes us tick. But, but there's actually something even more foundational than those seven values. When the, the gospel, that is, when the truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is actively, intentionally, daily trusted, it goes to work. And it produces distinct, identifiable traits in the household of God. And the first trait that you see in a gospel-centric people is gratitude. When the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, when that truth is active, it's functioning in me, I feel grateful. I become a thankful person. In verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Paul feels gratitude. And that gratitude is directed toward Jesus. Why is he thankful? Why, why, why is Paul a thankful man? Where does this gratitude spring from? Well, for one, Christ Jesus, the Lord, gave him strength. Strength for what? <laughs> what? Why did Paul need strength from Jesus? What, what kind of strength is needed by all of us that can be received from no one else but Jesus? Loved ones, there's, there's one thing that all humankind shares in common, and that is our spiritual and moral Inability. By nature, no one seeks God. By nature, no one desires God. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that's because by nature we are spiritually and morally unable to draw near to God, much less make things right between us and God. We bring nothing to the table. If anyone is inclined to know God if anyone's inclined to draw near to God, to turn to God, to trust God, it is because God 
in Christ, acted first and supplied the moral and spiritual ability, that is the strength to do so. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Paul says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace doesn't flow to him because of the faith and love that are by nature in him. It's by virtue of the faith and love that are his in Christ Jesus. The one who gives him that gift. I resisted God. I opposed God's purpose. My head was full of rocks and my heart was hard as stone. We sing that song, right? I was dead in sin. I was a slave to disobedience. I could not even think straight about God because in and of myself, I was morally, spiritually, intellectually unable. But then... God worked a miracle. His grace, it just, it just came to me like a tsunami. I was fixed in my moral position over here. But then this tide comes. This tide of grace, it comes and it rises. And it just kept rising and rising. And it overflowed for me until I was literally swept into union with Jesus. And now, I can say from personal experience, Christ Jesus, He came into the world to save sinners like me. But there's another reason Paul gives for his, really a profound feeling of gratitude. Again, verse 12, look at this. I thank Him because... He judged me faithful. Paul feels deep gratitude because Jesus judged him. Also translated, considered him or reckoned him faithful. (laughs) And Paul can't get over it. His life apart from Christ, it displayed no apparent faithfulness to Christ. No discernible loyalty to Christ. Christ could never have counted on Paul. There's no esteem for Jesus. There was simply nothing about Paul's life and character that would have ever supported the jury's verdict. Faithful. We find him faithful. The evidence only pointed to the contrary. Blasphemer. Persecutor. Insolent opponent. Loved ones, this this is... As as Kayla said, this is the mystery and the marvel of the gospel doctrine of justification. 
People who live with no regard for Jesus and seldom, if ever, give a thought to Jesus or bend the knee to his kingship or his authority or his will or his, his purpose. People who, in relation to the head or the household of God, live as though he were nothing. And yet, when swept into Christ... By the grace, that is the strength of Christ. And they entrust themselves to Christ. They are judged, reckoned, counted, faithful. We need to think deeply about that. Rightly about that. Christ Jesus came into the world to give life and forgiveness and compassion and healing to sinners. And like Paul, we blaspheme God and his wisdom and his faithfulness with our discontent. We blaspheme God and his good and loving providence with our anger and charges against his unfairness. It's that, it's not right. Like Paul, we hound the ones we've been charged to love and honor. We hound our sons and daughters. We hound our parents. We dishonor and crush the spirits of those nearest to us. We oppose the redeeming purpose for which Christ Jesus came and lived and died. And we do so with insolence. It's a, it's a word that we also translate hubris. It's just it's just pride. We're, we're self-righteous. We're self-centered. We're self-exalting. We, and we feel justified in being so. When I consider how passionately and unrelentingly devoted I am to feeling good about me. Above others in my household. When I catch myself making, a, you know, a a cruel or sideways, cutting, soul-crushing, offhand comment to my wife or my sons, and then consider that in Christ, joined to Christ, the Lord judges me faithful to Him, loyal and true to Him. I'm undone by that. In verse 13, Paul says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But then look at this. Look at verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am. Present tense verb indicating continuous ongoing action. Loved ones, this, this gospel truth, namely that Christ came to justify sinners, it just blew Paul away. <laughs> he knew his Bible. He knew that no human being could be justified before God through one's own righteousness. That's because all have sinned and fallen short of treasuring God, faithfully honoring and Esteeming God. But now the fulfillment of the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from our faithfulness to God. 
Think of it. Because Jesus came to justify sinners, we who have this mountain of sin in our past, and our hearts continue, continue to generate countless more sins every day, we are judged faithful by Christ through faith in Christ. Do you feel gratitude rising for that? That's what the gospel does. And imagine an entire spiritual community of thankful people. That's like a totally different economy. Here's a second trait that you see in a gospel-centered culture, gospel-centric people. And that's, that's humility. You know, um, f- a fundamental Part of our disciple-making delivery system is our discipleship huddles. And a very vital component in our discipleship huddle structure and time is helping one another identify idols and areas of unbelief. And then, and then you know, repenting and entrusting ourselves again to Christ. And um, our aim in this is to be transparent with one another regarding this, this the, you know, this ongoing if it's unattended to, this eroding effect of remaining sin in our lives. And, and I guess, you know, I'm, I'm curious at times, because <laughs> I think this way, uh, how many of us there are that, 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 you know, we just cannot wait for the repent and believe time in our huddle. Oh, this is the best part when I get to talk openly about my failures. <laughs> In the fight of faith. How many, how many can't wait to talk transparently about their failure in their battle against lust? Or they just can't wait to confess that emotional, mental affair they had in their imagination? Or, or just think of the joy it's going to be this week when I admit my jealousy or my shame or my arrogance or my self-pity. Do you, do you realize what a remarkable thing it is for Paul to say? I mean, it's, it's astonishing to hear when he says, I, I was a blasphemer. I, w- I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. You know, those are just exceedingly shameful skeletons in his closet. I, imagine telling your story on at your missional community some night saying, you know, something like, you know, well, there, I, I was, there's this low point in my life, and, and I was totally wasted drunk behind the wheel, and I killed somebody's five-year-old child. Or, you know, he came on to me, and When I wanted him to stop and tried to make him stop, he just wouldn't stop. Or, I've just lost it again with my kids. And this time I really lost it. And now they're afraid to be alone with me. My own kids. There are times, aren't there, when we hear somebody else's story and we think, oh, man, my story's like, Boring snooze fest compared to that. I mean, I wish I, I wish I had some real testimony. 
But if we are honest, don't we, have all, don't we all have things in our past or our present that we would just feel absolutely just, it's just too shameful and embarrassing to let that out. But when we've received mercy, and when we entrust ourselves to the justification of God through the saving work of Christ, there is a, it's an appropriate, it is a humble, tender-hearted transparency. It's, it's the trait of gospel-empowered humility. And when gospel-powered humility permeates the culture of a discipleship huddle or a missional community or an entire church, well, then, then finger-pointing and gossip and walking on eggshells and smug self-righteousness and feeling so easily hurt, it diminishes. And in the economy of God, it feels safe to... Be transparent about our sins because it is safe to be transparent, transparent and confess our sins. Here's a third trait that you see in a gospel-centered culture. And that's servanthood. In the economy of God, the gospel is what informs our identity. In the economy of God, we are all just quite simply servants. Verse 12, I thank him, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. In the economy of God, Christ makes a claim on our lives. He, he owns. He appoints. There are no more free agents. There's no, nobody saying, you know, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is, this is my assignment. I get to do this because I like doing this or I want to do this. We're all servants, we're all servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. Servants owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Servants deployed by the Lord Jesus Christ. To do what he's doing. Which is namely, building his church. We're servants. We're servants. Whose assignments, whose fruitfulness, and the extent of whose influence is only and exclusively from the Lord Jesus Christ. Just, just let that, just feel the, the self-importance <laughs> drain from you. Uh, it, it, that just happens so rarely, namely that self-importance drains away from us. Um, 
and, and ask yourself, where am I deriving my identity? Where do you derive your significance? Is it your position? Is it your responsibility? Is it your prominence? Is it what you accomplish? Is it the affirmation and approval that you receive from others? Or is your identity located in the one who appointed you to his service despite your sin? Is it in the one who judges you faithful by virtue of his faithfulness despite your unfaithfulness? You see, it's the gospel that makes all the difference in a culture that is characterized by competition and comparison and envy and emotional fragility and hypersensitive to criticism and self-pity and intimidation by people who would critique us and a culture that is characterized by gratitude and humility and backbone and resoluteness because the one who appointed you also bought you with his own blood And he sustains you and governs every molecule in the universe by his will and his word. Gratitude, humility, servanthood, loved ones. These are gospel-produced fruits that you can actually see and feel. Here's a fourth trait that is discernible among a gospel-centric people, and that is patience in suffering. In the economy of God, everything points to and is directed toward the visible display of the glory of Jesus. The local church is intended by God to reveal the character and attractiveness of the person of Jesus. Verse 16 says, Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience. The perfect patience of Jesus. That's that's why we've been showed mercy, so that that would be seen by others as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. If, If you have entrusted yourself to Jesus' perfect life in exchange for your sinful and broken life, if you've entrusted yourself to Jesus' sin-atoning sacrifice as a substitute for your sin-atoning sacrifice, if you've consciously entrusted yourself to His mercy, it wasn't so that you could just go on your merry way, forgiven, without yielding to His claim on your life. That The reason Jesus has expressed His mercy, the reason Jesus has generously poured out His mercy, the reason that we entrust ourselves to His mercy is so that... In and through our being, in us, our lives, both individually and corporately, the perfect patience of Jesus might be put on display for the world to see. Where's the perfect patience of Jesus most clearly seen? Christ died for sinners. Came into the world to save sinners. We receive mercy in order to show the world what a gospel-centric culture looks like. And one of the most distinguishing 
unique, you don't see it anywhere else, traits of a gospel-centered culture is Christ-like patience in physical, emotional, relationally painful things. Loved ones, in the world we have trouble. But in the economy of God, we don't respond and react to trouble like the way the world does. In union with Christ as recipients of His mercy, empowered by the gospel, we respond to trouble, we react to trouble like Christ did. Just imagine if we reacted to all the headaches and heartaches and in our world with the patience of the one into whose life we have been joined. Keep going here. Here's a fifth trait of a gospel-centered culture, and that's, that's generosity. Generosity, it's just on display everywhere in this text in the person and work of Christ. Look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, in spite of what I have proven to be. Verse 13, but I received mercy. Verse 14, the grace of Christ overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The one doing all of the giving, all the acting, all the overflowing, all the outward, it's Jesus. He's lavish. In his giving. He supplies the strength to the powerless so that they can believe. He justifies the guilty. He makes his adversaries full partners in his global venture. He grants mercy to those who deserve it the least. He pours out the gifts of saving faith and love with irresistible and overwhelming grace. He exonerates the most nefarious criminals and cancels the most insurmountable debts. And if this is how he treats us, based on his economy, then certainly he means for his household to be emblematic of his generous-hearted disposition. How can, how can gospel-centered people be miserly with mercy or frugal with forgiveness? Or chintzy when it comes to a charitable disposition. Why should the tithe be the high bar? Why isn't a double tithe the median? Shouldn't the household of God reflect the lavish generosity of the Son of God? There's one more trait here. And it's distinctive of a culture shaped by the economy of God. And it's joy. It's joy. In 1 Timothy 1, 12-17, Paul is so discernibly moved. He is affected. He, and he reveals how deeply he feels about the saving work of Christ Jesus in his use of, I just call them superlatives, right? 
Verse 14, the grace of the Lord overflowed for me. Didn't just kind of trickle. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Verse 16, I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. You know, when we, when we get kind of jacked up about something, we talk differently, don't we? <laughs> and, and the more Paul's thinking about the gospel and, the, and God's glorious, ex, his grace expressed to him through Christ Jesus, his, his depth of affection for all that he has received is spontaneously bursts out through his pen in verse 17 to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's no other way to read that. Well, I guess you could. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor. But how incongruent would that be? <laughs> Loved ones, I, I, I mean this with real tender-hearted affection, but, but how do we explain flat emotional affect when it comes to responding to the person and work of Christ? Gospel-centered people should be the most earnest, expressive, passionate Worshippers on the planet. This isn't a matter of personality, background, or culture of origin. It's about the worth of a person. And the worth of the work he has done. He has saved us. From eternal punishment. The joy of a gospel-centered people. It spills out all over the place. But especially when they gather together. And all those rivers come together for the purpose of pursuing his presence and praising the honor of the Christ who is their king. Just close with this. Three things. This is how I'd encourage you to, to respond to this. Because you see, you know, the goal, it's, you know, it's not like a, the goal is, I wish I, you know, I'm going to be a more um, thankful humble, servant, generous, happy, blah, blah, blah. That The goal is to be a gospel-centered people because as we think deeply about the gospel, it, that's, that's when it, it brings about these fruits. So these fruits, it's these traits that, that, that reveal that that's what we are, a gospel-centered people. So think, this is the first thing, think deeply about the gospel because thinking deeply about the gospel is the only way to feel deeply to fuel deep affection for the gospel preaching the gospel to ourselves every day it's it's, it's the only way to to go deeper as a gospel centered people so think contemplate meditate sing it pray it <clears throat> second if you have not done so, receive the gift of Christ's mercy. Turn to Christ and be healed. Turn to Christ and be forgiven. Yield to his 
claim upon your life. Submit to him. Trust him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Namely, to save you from your sin. To, to, to untangle you from your sin. Trust him to impart to you faith and love for him. Which are yours to have in him. And pray, Jesus, I'm depending on you. I'm de- I'm relying on you and you alone to change me, to justify me, to pardon me, to cancel the debt of my sin, and to make me your joyful servant. Receive it. And then finally, and this should go without saying, worship the king with all your being. Whether you actually feel deeply about the gospel or not, the only appropriate response to Christ for all that he is and all that he has done in saving us is it's intense, earnest, with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, exaltation. So let's pray and then, and then we'll do that. We'll express our worship for the worth of God, our, our King, with all of our being. It would, so, it would be so wonderful. Lord, if you just kind of zapped us with this all at once, just bam, just made us this way. And we do understand, recognize, we've heard about it, that in history you have come and brought spiritual awakening with a suddenness to it. If you would do that, that would be marvelous. We would just be so thankful. We'd be so amazed. You'd get all the glory. And more likely, more typically, these are things that you, you bring us along, you shepherd us into, you take us into green pastures, and then you lead us beside quiet waters, and then there's other places where it's dark and hard and scary and then, and then you restore our souls and, and you build us gradually. If it would please you to build us that way, build us that way, build the gospel so deeply into this people, this Emmaus Road Church community, that these traits might be so increasingly, in greater measure, true of us, we would be more thankful. We would be increasingly gentle and humble, tender-hearted. We would be humble servants, attentive to you, ready to do your will, your bidding. You're the leader. You're the one who appoints and sends and deploys and positions. You're the one who does all that. And we would trust you for that. Lord, that you would make us more patient in hard things, because there are hard things in our lives. Make us more like Jesus. Lead us into the patience of Jesus. Make us generous-hearted people. Generous-hearted with one another. Generous-hearted everywhere. 
And oh God, make us to be to know the joy of your salvation. And to be full and free, increasingly so, to, to, to let that joy be seen. Because you are worthy to be praised. You're worthy to be worshipped with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Would you be exalted that way now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.